So I felt like I was caught in the middle of a Seinfeld episode. Uh, some of you maybe don't remember the show Seinfeld or you never saw it. Some of you did, though. But it was like I was at a restaurant with George Costanza's parents. Do you remember them? So there we were, sitting in a restaurant, and across the way was this, this elderly couple. And, and, and you could tell this gentleman, he must have worked with his hands. He just had these massive hands. Uh, but he was struggling mightily, trying to get the ketchup out of the Heinz 57 bottle. He had this nice burger, and he was trying to shake that ketchup out of the bottle, and nothing came out, and, and he was you know, pounding it on the bottom, and he was, he was twisting, he was doing all these things. You could just see the frustration uh, getting, you know, welling up inside of him. I think his face was turning as red as the ketchup that was inside that glass vice, and, and he just wanted to get that. I thought he was going to break it on the table finally and just uh, you know, pour it out. But while he's doing that, and he's getting more and more upset, his wife in a not-so-encouraging way, says, you got to hit the 57. Hit the 57. Little-known fact, if you hit the 57 on a Heinz ketchup bottle, the, the ketchup flows like the truck. Well, maybe not the Truckee River this year, so it's low, so low, but it just flows. Well, he was not going to let Mrs. get the satisfaction being right. And so he just kept trying every other way to get ketchup out of that bottle Instead of hitting the 57, so there he is getting madder and madder and madder. And she's saying, hit the 57, hit the 57. And, and all of a sudden, their nice date turns into this massive duel. Hit the 57. I mean, have you ever heard of an argument so silly? Probably, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, there are more than 57 varieties of uh, silly arguments. I can guarantee that over Christmas, when our boys are home, uh, for the holidays, they will argue about whose eighth grade basketball team was the greatest, even though that's four and six years ago, right? Or I will argue with my oldest son, who's the GOAT, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? It's obviously Michael Jordan, right? Or, or um, you know, there, and there are dozens and dozens of varieties of that. Coke versus Pepe, Pepsi, Lay's versus Ruffles, dog people versus cat people, TP over, TP under. You know, pick your argument, and I almost would, if I'm a betting man, I would almost guarantee that if you rode here today with at least one other person, you maybe had a silly argument on the way. It seems like 80% of silly arguments happen in the car when you are going somewhere. That happened for the disciples, too. Seems like they often had an argument as they were going somewhere, as they were on the road. That's what we see happening in Mark chapter 9 as Jesus, they get to a house and Jesus says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? And all of a sudden they grew silent because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Just for argument's sake today, who would you say is the greatest disciple? Anybody want to put anybody up for a nomination? Chris? Judas? Okay. Why? All right. So, very good. I didn't think anybody would say Judas. But yeah, Judas got used. Uh, you could also say even, but they didn't know that yet. But he, what would have been Judas's argument maybe along that day? He would say, hey, I'm the treasurer. I got all the money, right? Money equals power, so I'm the greatest. Anybody else want to throw anybody up for a nomination? Yeah. 
Peter. Peter's usually the most common one that people throw out there. I mean, Peter had just seen Jesus glowing on Mount of Transfiguration. He's often the spokesperson. He had walked on water uh, not too long before this, so Peter could have said, yeah, I can walk on water. What can you guys do? I'm the greatest. Anybody other want to nominate anybody? John. John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. In less than a year, when they're celebrating the Passover, where is John? He's sitting right next to Jesus, a seat of honor. John also was the one who was able to see Jesus glowing on that Mount of Transfiguration just before this argument. So yeah, I could see John. Any other ones? Matthew. Why? Okay. Yeah, Matthew was this tax collector, right? And he said, hey, I was lost. I had the furthest to come. You guys were just fishermen, all right? You maybe heard about all this stuff, but I was a traitor. And look at, look at how far I've come. All right, all great answers. Maybe some people would say, Andrew. And you say, why Andrew? Andrew was the first disciple. You know, when we talk about Peter being the greatest disciple, there would be no Peter the disciple if it wasn't for Andrew. That was his brother who went and found Peter. You know who I would say, who I would argue for, kids, as the greatest disciple? Thaddeus. And you say, Thaddeus? I don't even know Thaddeus was a disciple, right? Well, look at how silly we are. Here we are. We're arguing who's the greatest disciple, just like they were, right? Putting, away, putting forward our own ideas. How silly of us. We just wasted three minutes. Why should we argue about who's the greatest disciple? And if it's silly for us to argue about who the greatest disciple is, or if it's silly for them to argue about who the greatest disciple was, then why, why do we argue about who's the greatest of us? And you say, well, we don't. Really? Be honest. You don't think you're the the greatest boss or the greatest worker or the greatest musician or the greatest cook or the greatest student or the greatest sibling or the greatest grandparent or the greatest dad or the greatest member. You maybe don't go all Muhammad Ali on me and say it. Oh, I'm the greatest. But What's behind such an argument? What's behind an argument for I am the greatest? It's, it's really that, that word pride, right? And if you peel away the sin of pride, what do you see staring at you right from the middle is I. And if you really think about it, behind every sin, there's pride. I am the greatest. I don't care what you got say. I'm going to do what I want. That's pride. I'm the greatest. I'm greater than you, God. Or you go back to the very first sin, right? Eve. Eve's there in the Garden of Eden. Why does she take a, be- a, a, a piece of forbidden fruit and, and take a bite of that? Because, oh, maybe I can be like God. Why do we refuse to do our homework sometimes? Because that wouldn't be fun for me. Why do we cry ourselves to sleep at night sometimes? Because nobody likes me. Why do we sometimes stay awake at night? Because I'm worried about me or my family. 
you really look at every one of our sins, and we struggle. We struggle with this thing that stares at us in the middle of pride. We, st- we struggle with me. We, we struggle with being the greatest. And that's silencing. It's silencing once in a while to get hit right between the eyes with that truth that, yeah, there is a part of me that struggles with pride in my own way, thinking I'm the greatest. It was silencing for the disciples when Jesus asked that little question, hey, what were you guys arguing about? You could hear a pin drop in that Capernaum home when Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? So why did Jesus ask the question? And why does Jesus ask us the question today? Why do you think you're the greatest? Just to make us squirm? No. Because Jesus knows that one of the biggest threats, if not the biggest threat, that can destroy our faith is a love of self. You know, you go back just a week before this conversation that Jesus has in the Capernaum room, he explains to his disciples, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple and follow me must deny themselves. Deny themselves and follow me. Jesus knows how threatening self is. He knows that pride, pride gets in the way of us following Jesus. Pride can get in the way of, of our faith. Pride just plops itself on the path like a big old traffic pile and saying, nope, you can't go this way. Find some other way. I don't want you to to ever get close to Jesus. That's what pride does because it's all about I. And we all struggle with it. But thankfully, thankfully while pride plops itself on, on the path that we follow, it's on the path to Jesus It was not on the path of Jesus. You know, on Tuesday nights, uh, we have connect groups or growth groups. Uh, We've been meeting this season on Tuesday nights at the Carol's house and just a little commercial. You are all welcome to come this week and you get Taco Tuesday this week. So if you want to come, 5.30, 6 o'clock, you are more than welcome to come over there. I do need an RSVP though today, all right? Uh, But but, I... so then we, we, we reinforce the, the weekly message. And you can also, if you want to zoom in, let me know. Uh, but anyway, at Connect Groups, when we started this series, we talked about the transition in the Gospel of Mark. And over the last three weeks, we've been looking at, this is from Mark 9, we've looked at Mark 7, we've looked at Mark 8. But if you look at the way that the Gospel, this is the way the Gospel of Mark starts, Jesus just bursts onto the scene with miracle after miracle after miracle. If I just thumb through the book of Mark, I mean, I'm just going to read some of the headings here. So in Mark 1, you got, oh, guess what? 
Jesus heals, Jesus heals. Oh, and then what happens? Oh, Jesus heals, Jesus heals. And then, oh, then what does it say here? Oh, Jesus calms the storm. Oh, Jesus raises a dead girl. Oh, Jesus restores a a demon-possessed man. Oh, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Oh, Jesus walks on water. Oh, Jesus heals, Jesus heals. Jesus feeds 4,000 this time. And it's just miracle after miracle after miracle, all these awesome displays of power that, that could have just, you know, fed Jesus' pride. But then you get to about the midway point, what we've been looking at the last three weeks. And all of a sudden you see this shift that, yeah, Jesus says, he, he shows all his disciples, hey, I'm the powerful son of God. But it's not about me. I don't know if you caught it when we read the gospel earlier. While the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest, do you remember what Jesus was talking about on the road? This is what he said. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, some of you maybe know that name, great author, Christian author, didn't grow up a Christian, grew up an atheist, wrote things like screw tape letters, mere Christianity, the lion, witch, and the wardrobe. Um, but he said once, he said, humility is not thinking of your, less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So that's the opposite of pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's really what we see Jesus doing, isn't it? I mean, you again look at what it says here. It says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. And sometimes I I think that title for Jesus is maybe the most misapplied, uh, misdefined title for Jesus. Whenever you hear Son of Man, people sometimes say, oh, that's just Jesus being, that's false humility. That, oh yeah, I'm not the Son of God, I'm just the Son of Man. Actually, it's quite the opposite. In the Old Testament, the prophets often talked about Uh, or wrote about, hey, there is going to be someone like a son of man who has all power, who has all dominion, who's going to reign over all things. He's going to fulfill all the Old Testament. So whenever Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, he is saying, hey, all those prophecies are about me. I am the one who has all power. I am the one who has all dominion. He, He never thinks less of himself. He understands who he is and what he has come to do. But he also understands it's not for him. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that's what we see Jesus doing. His whole life highlighted in the second half of the book of Mark. I mean, you will see a phrase like this over and over and over again. The Son of Man is here for what purpose? To be delivered into the hands of men. To be killed. If you jump ahead a chapter, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, Jesus, his whole life, it's not about him, but he's thinking about you. He's thinking about your life. He's, he's, he's laying out his life so that he can be the servant of all. You are the all to Jesus. 
And he doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. And so what does he do here with the disciples? He reinforces this message. You know, as, as he's sitting there, he, and, they, and they, they go go silent because they've been arguing about the greatest. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't storm out of the house and say, hey, you guys, you're a hopeless cause. He says, no, okay, I'm thinking of you. And so what does he do? He grabs, a little, uh, he, he grabs a little child sitting down. Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then he took a little child whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, and so this child, sometimes people say, well, who is this kid? What's this kid doing in the Capernaum room? I don't know who that kid is. Someone argue it's Peter's kid. Peter lived in Capernaum. We know Peter was married, so maybe it's Pete Jr. It doesn't really matter. But the point of what Jesus is talking about here, and to, to understand the culture a little bit, there would have been no Galilean mom, or there would have been no Galilean kid that would have had a cell phone with data, all right? They were not spoiled, all right? Uh, there would have been no Galilean mom who would have called up the bus driver and said, hey, my little Johnny didn't have a good day on the bus. What are you going to do about that? Uh-uh. Uh, there would have been no Galilean mom who would have carted her kid to violin lessons on the south side of town and then taken him to club soccer on the north side of town. No, while kids were seen as a blessing, they were also regarded as bottom rung of the social and cultural ladder. And so by taking that little child into his arms, Jesus is reminding his disciples, don't think of yourself so highly. Here and other places, Jesus welcomes the little children. Doesn't spoil them, but he welcomes them, just like he welcomes the tax collector, just like he welcomes the thief, just like he welcomes the prostitute. Doesn't condone their behavior, but, but welcomes them. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he, he is trying to ingrain into our minds and in the disciples' mind, you know, you are not better than any one of these people. Set your pride aside. Why? Because I want a relationship with you. And I know self can so often get in the way. And that's why he, he adds on this promise here. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. See, if, if self isn't in the way, our Savior is. What a beautiful promise. Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. And not only do you welcome Jesus in your life, but you also, whoever welcomes me also welcomes the one who sent me. That's why Jesus smacks us with this law today because he gives us this wonderful promise. He says, I don't want anything. I don't want anything to get between you and me and our relationship. I don't want anything to get between you and your father's relationship. So don't think of yourselves, but think of others. And to help us do that today, I have a party favor for you today. On your way out, I have 50 packets of Heinz ketchup, okay? This is not for communion, all right? Um, uh, but you can grab one of these on your way out, and as you put it in your fridge or as you put it on your fries, or you put it, the next time you open it, I'd pray it'd just be a reminder for you 
that's not about us. That it reminds you to adopt the you-first attitude. Because that's what Je- the attitude that Jesus had. He put you first. He put you first as he descended from his throne in heaven and humbled himself to become one of us. He put you first as he endured the shame of the cross for you. And why did he do that? So that one day, one day he could open up his arms and welcome you. Welcome you into his kingdom where there are more than 57 kinds of varieties. There's people from every nation, every language, every people will be there. And that, that is what makes Jesus the greatest. Amen.